This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Put an edge on your friends with a Pussy Magnet. Welcome, welcome, my lovely lumps. Or should I say lovely labs? I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. <laughs> Ah, can never help myself. Anyway, we're going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country, and I pay respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. Now, if you're ready, let's flap and do this. <laughs> oh God, is there such thing as too many vagina jokes in the one intro? <laughs> Whatever, I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull up the couch. It's the Lady Lounge. Hello, everyone. Okay, so I've never done this before, but I felt the need to pop a bit of a disclaimer in at the start of this episode because there's a few things that I want to clarify before you listen to it. Um, so just to give you a bit of context, I was actually a bit unsure whether to publish this interview because my guest today has kicked up quite the maelstrom of internet hysteria lately with something that she's said online and is copying some serious hate on socials for right now. Um, and as you probably already know, my guest on this episode is Jessica Pinn. Uh, and while I want to acknowledge that I categorically disagree with her stance on including trans vulvas in a vulva diversity art project, um, and we do talk about that in the episode, I don't want, um, I, I, I just wanted to make it clear right from the top that I really don't back the way that she's gone about expressing her opinions on these sort of matters. Um, I do believe, though, that she has a really earnest and sincere mission that she's dedicated her life to as she pursues anatomically correct diagrams and accurate female pleasure anatomy information in medical textbooks and medical trainings, uh, training standards and, and curricula. And I feel that her intentions are never to hurt or offend, although she goes about things a little bit blithely and without thought sometimes and often puts her foot in it, um, leaving some very offended and hurt people in her wake. Um, I really think she's advocating for and achieving some really important things in the Western medical model that are going to ultimately help raise the bar for all of us when it comes to more awareness about female anatomy and pleasure, um, as well as the dangers of labiaplasty, which is the topic of this podcast episode. So just to be clear, regarding her intentions in this, I really admire what she's trying to do. And I wanted to publish this episode because there's loads of great stuff that she does talk about and has to offer in this realm. I didn't want to just do what everyone else is doing and throw the baby out with the bathwater in a fury and discredit all that she's done and is doing and all that she believes just because I don't agree with some of the other things that she's done or said. Um, 
I also don't want to have this podcast be just (laughs) only an echo chamber or a big circle jerk of like-minded folk who agree with one another on everything and don't offer any different diverse or controversial perspectives uh, because that's really boring and we won't learn as much that way either. So I'm publishing this episode against quite a few uh, people's advice Um, and I'd love your feedback because it feels a bit risky and a bit nerve-wracking to me. but I'm human and it's, you know, I'm always learning as well. And I strongly believe that this culture of cancelling and relentlessly attacking those who have made a mistake and destroying their careers, just directing pure hatred towards them without considering any nuances or making an effort, like people don't even make an effort to discover the real context of the situation um often and it's unhealthy and it's really damaging and it's really unconstructive um it just leaves no opportunity for learning and repair uh i've seen the irreparable damage that it can do to people who don't always deserve it you know or maybe they deserve to be told but they don't deserve to have their entire livelihoods and their career ruined and their mental health in the process um And I've talked about cancel culture on this podcast before, so we know how I feel about that. Um, So I'd encourage you to just keep an open mind and take in what does resonate with you from this episode and discard what doesn't. But trust me, when it comes to labiaplasty, which is why I booked in Jessica as a guest months ago, and it just so happens that as we recorded this, this entire shit storm of cancel culture was closing in on her after a pretty big uh, faux pas on her part. Um, yeah, when it comes to labiaplasty, Jessica really knows her shit, hence why I got her on. Um, she's dedicated her life and she's a tenacious researcher when it comes to all of this stuff. So there's a lot of good stuff in the episode that I wanted to keep. But... Um, one concern that I have is that in releasing this episode, my podcast and my brand will get caught up in that wave of cancel culture that's storming her right now. Um, and my other concern is that I will be assumed to align with all of her views and the opinions that she shares on the episode and online, which I really must emphasize, I definitely don't. I actually disagreed with a fair few points that she made in this interview, and I spoke up about some of them in the episode and offered my perspective to make sure you were getting an alternative view, as well as to defend this safe, non-judgmental space that I've created on the podcast, where what I talk about is empowering and educational as the main focus. This theme's very important to me, so I want to protect this and maintain the podcast as a place where you can find accurate and inspiring and interesting information and discussions. However, I also don't want to shy away from controversy too much, and I felt like it would be a bit cowardly of me to simply not publish this interview for fear of being cancelled along with my poor guest who is currently getting smashed. Um Because, yeah, what's happening to her is a prime example of just how vicious and unreasonable cancel culture can be. And I don't agree with how nuance is ignored and people's words are taken out of context when, you know, the internet's being, um, you know, just so swept up in trying to tear someone down and ruin their career and their mental health and sometimes their lives, you know, in, in this praised sort of um, frenzy of anger and accusation. So anyway, that is a very big caveat to preface this episode for you. Um, But I just felt like it was my job to make sure I mentioned all of this, 
just as it's my job to hear out all my guests and treat them kindly and fairly when I interview them, even when I don't agree with everything they're saying. You know, they're guests in the Labia Lounge, not being grilled or attacked on a talk show, you know. Um, I don't have to support everyone and everything that gets said on the podcast and give it a platform without putting my two cents in to keep my listeners and my safe, my my space safe. So, yeah, I'm sure you're just aching to hear what goes on in this episode now, so I'll let you get stuck into it. Hey, my labia lovers, welcome back to The Lounge. Today, we're going to be covering a topic that really needs to be spoken about and educated on more, in my opinion, because it's the fastest growing cosmetic surgery and can be way more damaging and risky than we're led to believe, labiaplasty. So my guest today has quite a personal and pretty horrifying story about her experience with this surgery and she's now dedicated her life to a very unique type of advocacy as a result of a botched labiaplasty. Um, So we'll be diving into her experience with labiaplasty, the common consequences uh, and risks of this surgery, how common botched surgeries are and why, how this impacts female pleasure, sexual functioning and mental health, among other things, and how Jessica is changing the standard of education and cliteracy through her work today. So let me introduce my guest. Jessica Pinn is an advocate for inclusion of detailed clitoral anatomy in medical literature and curricula, training standards for vulva procedures, and correction of medical misinformation about vulvas. So fucking important. She holds a degree in biomedical engineering, and she has gotten 12 major textbooks, two top anatomy apps, and multiple online resources to update their content, and more to promise future updates, which is freaking huge, and we're going to chat about that because that's no small feat. So many of the textbooks and educational resources are just so fucking outdated, and I cannot tell you how hard it was for me to try and find an accurate diagram for my course queen out. Anyway, so Jessica's also published a cadaveric fuck I, I was like how do you say that cadaveric study with plastic surgeons convinced OBGYNs to publish a cadaveric study and affected changes in OBGYN and plastic surgery board certification standardized consent forms and residency curricula so we can get into what all of that means because that was a lot of a lot of medical terms and stuff. Um, but basically, I want to get started with giving everyone a bit of background on you, Jessica, because um, I've heard you talk, I've heard your story. But yeah, if you feel comfortable, could you give us a bit of a rundown on what happened to you that drove you to make this sort of advocacy your life's work? So when I was 17, I got online to find out what my clitoris was, because actually the way that sex ed failed me is I never learned what the clitoris was. I never even learned what the vulva was. In fact, Mm -hmm. all I knew was that I had a vagina, which is a cavity. And so I had no clue what was going on with the extra stuff on the outside. No one ever talked to me about it. No one ever spoke about it. And then when I heard about the clitoris and I didn't know what it was, I was embarrassed. Um, And I asked my mom and she did not give me a good explanation. So um, I ended up on the internet trying to figure out what exactly it was and how to find it. Um, And so I ended up on the Wikipedia page for vulva. Um, I had never even heard that word before. 
And so then I was looking at all the different parts of the vulva just out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up, you know, basically the vulva that was shown on Wikipedia had teeny tiny labia minora, like smaller than I have ever seen in porn even. They were tiny. And so I looked at it and I thought, oh gosh, that's not what I look like. And so then I Googled to see if other vulvas looked like mine, right? And so I Googled labia minora and I got before and after photos for labioplasty and I got labioplasty advertisements and I clicked on those because I was just, you know, 17 and curious trying to figure out what was going on. And I read that protruding labia minora are considered unfeminine and embarrassing. I read that they were caused by excess androgens. And I Googled androgens and found out those are male hormones. And I read that they're caused by aging, excess masturbation, and sexual activity. Don't have sex, because you will get pregnant. And die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have, don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? Oh my and so God. I thought, oh my gosh, people are going to think that I masturbate too much. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh no, people are going to think I'm a big slut, even though I hadn't, I had been like a good girl. You know, I hate that term so much, but like, it's really sad that I grew up around, you know, this idea that I should basically, you know, suppress my sexuality and like be quote unquote good. And so I was a virgin. I hadn't done anything quote unquote wrong. So I didn't want people to think anything bad. Um, And so I just felt really ashamed. Um, I also read that they cause pain during sex. And at 17, I thought, oh my gosh, if I have sex, it will hurt me. Like I actually believed that because of what I read. Um, and I just felt like, um, that, like I was deformed basically because doctors call to this day, doctors call protruding labia minora hypertrophy. And some of them have even tried to expand the term. One thing I was doing the other day is I was asking chat GBT about, you know, like what hypertrophy is. And at first it wouldn't give me a definition, but then eventually it admitted that half the female population has hypertrophy. Have you used chat? No, I literally only found out what it was the other day. I'm such a Luddite. Like, I'm not very tech savvy. Um, And I had no idea. So, yeah, I've never used it. I wouldn't even know where to start. Like, I'm very, um, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. Like, I barely know how to use apps on my phone, to be honest, Um, which is tricky with owning your own business. I'm like always having to Google how to do the most basic things. But um, yeah, it sounds pretty incredible, kind of wild. Yeah, the only thing that I did like is ChatGBT did tell me that surgeons say rejuvenation to market labiaplasty. And ah, so, yep, yep, nice. <laughs> and so I was able to ask it. I was like, well, why do they say that if this isn't true? <laughs> and what did it say? And it's like, well, they're, they're trying to sell more procedures. And I'm like, yes, you got it. So then you're looking online, you're 17, you're vulnerable, you're bombarded with like society's expectations and standards of beauty, and you're freaking out that you're not normal and sex is going to hurt and everyone's going to think that you're like super masculine and you mass heaps. What happened? Yeah, and the word hypertrophy 
you know, it left me thinking that I was deformed, basically. Mm, yeah. And, and the most common definition applies to all labia minora that protrude, which is about half the female population. But there was one recent study that found that physical complaints about labia minora are not actually correlated with labia minora size. And so instead of concluding that that probably means that the size of the labia minora aren't often the cause of physical complaints, Instead, the plastic surgeon who did the study concluded that labia minora can be hypertrophic at any size. (laughs) Hypertrophic means excessively developed. (laughs) So he's basically arguing that, you know, anything can be hypertrophic. Like they don't want, they don't want an objective definition because they don't want to lose any business. Mm. (laughs) That's why there's no objective definition. Yeah. Or it's why they're often changing it. There's one definition um, that's on Medscape that defines any labia minora that are visible as hypertrophic. And so according to the Gynodiversity Project, that is actually 69% of the female population. Oh my God. Way to make everyone feel like shit. I mean, it's pretty standard narrative, isn't it? Making women feel guilty and ashamed of their bodies, but it's just kind of like beyond belief how far that actually goes when you dig in as you have. So it's also, yeah, wow. It's crazy, it's crazy that they can get away with saying that it's caused by sex and by ma- masturbation. Really? There is no evidence. This is just made up. And it's the kind of thing that misogynistic men will put in memes to shame women. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just bizarre that doctors do it and nobody talks about it. I so seem to be the being... only person who calls them out because is this actually doctors being claimed? Like, is this, is it sound, that sounds to me like, oh, maybe something that they would have like said in like the, you know, forties or fifties or it just sounds so archaic. Like, is this actually still being published by medical professionals now? Yes, in major medical textbooks, um, in medical journals. It's literally on Medscape today. If you get on Medscape, which anyone can get on Medscape, you can make an account, you can see the articles. Just look at the article on labiaplasty and it will tell you that labial hypertrophy is caused by sex and masturbation and horseback riding, which is another made-up claim. What the (laughs) Look, this is out of control. Oh my God. Okay. All right. I'm fuming. It's just crazy. (laughs) Okay. So you're feeling informed. I'm 17. And so um, my mom actually first, well, first I went to my mom and she said, what are you talking about? She goes, those flappy thingies, they're supposed to be ugly. So I think you can't tell a 17 year old girl that like something about her is ugly. She's just not going to want to hear it. Like, you know what I mean? You could have told me like my butthole was ugly and I would have been offended. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, I just didn't, I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to hear that I was ugly in any way. You know, I was very vain. I think a lot of girls are. <laughs> so, um, so I, I was like, oh my God, my mom doesn't know what she's talking about. Cause I didn't want a, an ugly vulva. And I had been online and I'd been seeing all these examples of what was considered attractive versus unattractive, you know? And so my mom took me to her OBGYN and I asked her OBGYN how I compared to other women. So I actually just wanted to know like what other women looked like compared to me. And she refused to tell me. 
She would not tell me what percentile I was in, which is actually what I asked because I was a little bit nerdy. Um, When I asked her how many of her previous 10 patients had labia minora bigger than mine, she would not tell me. She just kept telling me I was normal, but she wouldn't define what that meant. So according to one study, 45% of women seeking labiaplasty have labia minora less than average. And according to interview studies, a lot of them will say, yes, I know I'm normal, but then they believe that they are somehow unusual or disfigured or ugly, mm-hmm. right? So the normal has become meaningless because it's applied to everybody. It doesn't mean anything. And it's not, it doesn't end up being reassuring to a lot of people, or at least mm-hmm. to the people who end up seeking surgery. They're not, the interview studies show that it's not reassuring them because, mm-hmm. you know, it's... Maybe it's reassuring to some people. Anyway, I'm rambling. So after that, I still felt really ashamed and desperate. So I went to my dad and I told him I had pain riding my bike because it didn't feel like anybody was listening. And, you know, I I couldn't really get anyone to engage with my concern. And so, you know, and so I said that now... Someone could have suggested that I get a a different bike seat. Um, I also, you know, was not told any risks. And when I read the peer-reviewed medical literature published at the time, I read that there were no um, serious risks, that there were no major complications, that there was no risk to sexual function. In fact, there was this one patient education website called labiaplastysurgeon.com, I think, and I think it still exists. And it put no risk to sexual function in all caps. Oh, fuck me. (laughs) And so, and I remember being very worried about that, but I couldn't find anybody who said, because I like, I tried really hard to find information on whether my sexual function could be affected. I also asked my doctor what the labia minora were for, and he just shrugged. So I got this idea that was just extra skin. When my dad asked around at the hospital, he said, it turns out people do this all the time and it's no big deal. So I really thought it was no big deal. Um, My labia minora were completely amputated and my surgeon did a clitoral hood reduction without my consent and Mm. I lost clitoral sensation. And at the time, I didn't know what, I still didn't know what a clitoris was. I had never managed to find it. I had just given up. So all I knew was that the sensation that I had was gone. So before my surgery, I had, I was a virgin, but I had like, you know, pretty much all I had done at that point is like had guys like rub me on the outside or eat me out. (laughs) That's all I had done. And I had not had an orgasm before at that point. And so a lot of people have used that as a lot of people use that as a way to invalidate me after the fact. But like I had so much sensitivity, it would feel like I would be like, whoa, how are they doing this? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Which is why I was confused about like, because I did feel like my labia minora had a function. But when they, when the doctors, part of the problem is doctors have so much authority. It's really hard to say, oh, the doctors must be wrong. Right. And I eventually did do that, but it took, you know, it took losing all this sensation that I had and being told 
that it didn't happen for me to be like, fuck you guys. Like y'all don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> mm, no. Yeah. Um, but I think normally, like, especially at that age, it's you, you know, I think we all grow up believing that like doctors are the authority and that they know what they're doing mm. and can be trusted, especially peer reviewed medical literature. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Even, yeah. Even in 2017, the most expert labiaplasty surgeon in the world said that there was no evidence that the labia minora play any role in sexual function. That's what he was saying in 2017. <laughs> this is the guy who's probably done more labiaplasties than anybody on the planet, right? He's saying that. He was saying that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he has finally changed his views or not, but it's pretty crazy. Um, Makes me sick. Yeah, it's a joke. And so after that, how have you gone in terms of like sexual pleasure and, you know, confidence in your body and how has the surgery impacted you from then, you know, like mental health-wise, confidence-wise, pleasure? Um, So I... Couldn't figure out, I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I, um, you know, so well, my initial reaction was to blame the men. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it, it took like three or four partners for me to finally be like, you know what, I'm fucked up. Um, <laughs> oh. uh, by, by this, or no, it took me on my set, I think it was probably during my second relationship after my surgery when I started Googling you know, why can't I orgasm? Why, you know, I was started Googling stuff like that. And in June, 2006, my boyfriend asked me, you know, did I come after sex? And I've seen so many people say that men shouldn't ask that question. And I think that is idiotic. I think it's a great thing for men to ask because I mean, and I wish that somebody had asked me earlier because what I said to him straight up was, I don't think I can because of a surgery that I had. And that was the first time I said out loud exactly what had happened to me. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't know when I had started really thinking it in my head. But once he asked me that question, I was able to just tell him I can't because I had a surgery that made it so I can't. Mm-hmm. And so I knew the truth, but it didn't come out until he asked Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like, that's such a common thing for female communication styles. Like the way we nut things out is by verbalizing them. So half the time, like, you know, we'll be chatting about something or we'll say something and we'll be like, oh, I didn't even realize I thought that or felt that until it came out of my mouth or until I'd kind of gone on this little journey verbalizing my thoughts and feelings. And now it makes sense, you know, whereas like, I guess, um, more commonly for males, their communication style is, is different and it's not as meandering and nonlinear. It's very direct and they often will go away, think about something in their heads and then come to a conclusion and then they'll voice it. Whereas like for us women in particular, like we, we often come to conclusions through voicing it. So that doesn't surprise me at all that like when you finally got given, you know, an opportunity to like look into why that was and like, oh, why, like I didn't come, why, why is that? You know, it kind of came out in that, in that conversation. So Okay. Wow. And then after that, did you go and speak? I think I was in denial and I think 
it was almost yeah. safer for me to say it around somebody who I knew would would be there for me to yeah yeah totally and there were I do remember being in my head beating myself up for having the surgery um the year like only about a year after it happened because I remember being like my first semester freshman year at Vanderbilt like around like September or so because it was still warm like I remember like kind of like I remember it it, sorry (laughs) I remember this as a scene in my head kind of where I was beating myself up in my head and I can remember exactly where I was on Vanderbilt campus (laughs) Like, you shouldn't have done that, but you had to, but you shouldn't have. And now look what happened. But you needed that Mm -hmm. surgery, you know, just around in my my head, Mm -hmm. you know. So I believe that I had just really needed the surgery and that it was just bad luck. And that's how I handled it. And then I learned. So then it was like fall 2007. It was when I watched porn actually that I realized my labia were totally normal before my surgery because somehow when I first started watching porn I guess I saw like Stoya do you know who Stoya is no no. I think maybe I like maybe I was biased because I was looking for like I think a lot of women I've seen other women post about this I think a lot of women are sexually narcissistic is is how I've heard it described (laughs) like a lot of women are into themselves you know what I mean? Yeah, you know yeah. how like a lot of people say lingerie is not for men, it's for women. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Totally. I mean, yeah, some, men, yeah. some men appreciate lingerie, but a lot of men do not care and they are just confused. They're like, why are you, what is this for? Like, yeah. And there's like, I think there was a study about how when um, men, like a heterosexual couple have sex and there's a big mirror there, the guys are looking at the woman in that equation looking at her while they're fucking and the woman is looking at herself (laughs) you know and a lot of women will watch lesbian porn will try to seek out bodies that look like theirs yeah I totally think yeah so I was looking for women who look like me so so I was looking for tall skinny brunettes and maybe there's a thing where like tall skinny brunettes have bigger labia menorah or something but I stumbled upon quite a few porn stars that looked like me. And there was another one that I actually do remember. Her name is Angel Dark. She's like European or something. She's very beautiful. And she had, hers were even dark. Soya's are longer, but they're not dark. And she has actually talked about how, you know, how many women have like reached out to her and said that like they, that her vulva made them feel more confident and hers aren't even super large, you know, Mm -hmm. but at the time, like based on, like when I had surgery, I literally was under the impression that most women just had everything hidden and that yeah. it was really abnormal for labia minora to stick out at all. So when I started watching porn and I saw that other women did have labia minora that stuck out, I realized that I was normal. I also learned that a lot of women who have labia minora that don't stick out still have pretty big labia minora. <laughs> so my whole thing is like, I didn't just have big labia minora, I had small labia majora. And people don't talk about mm. that. 
Hey, babe towns. So sorry to interrupt, but I simply had to pop my head into the lounge here and mention another virtual lounge that you've got to get around. It's the Labia Lounge Facebook group that I've created for listeners of the potty to mingle in. And there you'll find extra bits and bobs like freebies or discounts for offerings from guests who've been interviewed on the podcast, inspiring and thought-provoking conversations, and support from a community of labial legends. I also have an account on the fab new app Sunroom, which is a platform created by women for women and non-binary folk, and where there's no shadow banning or censorship of sex-positive content unlike with the other platforms that I'm on. So you can hit up my sunroom for extra content and real and raw life updates because I'll be sharing on there from now on all of the stuff that I can't post anywhere else. My vision for both of these is that they become really supportive, educational, and hilarious resources for you to have more access to me and a safe space to ask questions that you can't ask anywhere else. So head over to the links in the show notes and I'll hopefully see you in there. And now back to the episode. I think like that whole that whole uh, distinction between uh, having an in and outie and that being impacted by whether the outer labia are larger and therefore encompass the inner labia versus the outer labia being quite small and therefore it making the inner labia look larger. It's almost like, you know how guys like will say they shave their pubes to make their dicks look bigger because there's less, there's less, you know, um, that's really interesting because I hadn't thought about that. Um, and so, yeah, you probably wouldn't have even had very large inner labia but because your outer labia were small it made them look larger and therefore you made you know that contrast made you feel like oh my god they're like massive yeah I also think it's part of how I got the result that I got because I told my doctor that I didn't want them to stick out and I told him that I really had no opinion like I was a you know I was a teenager I was clueless this was not my own judgment this was me yeah. reading online and in peer-reviewed medical literature that most women don't want their labia minora to stick out. I just yeah. wanted whatever most women wanted. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I had yeah. no, I had none of my own judgment about how labia look. Mm-hmm. I had assumed mm-hmm. that I was normal until I read all these bad things. Like I had never thought anything bad. Like I knew that my labia minora hung out and I was pretty like, familiar with them like I used to wax Mm. everything so I would like really get in there I knew what was going on (laughs) and I didn't think oh gosh am I abnormal I just assumed that I was normal I do remember like in bike shorts and in bathing suits I would check you know I would and I did have I had one swimsuit that was cotton and I did notice that it would like you could tell that my labia minora stuck out when it got wet. And I was kind of like, is that embarrassing? But then I was kind of like, eh. But I did did notice that. And so I feel like maybe that did bother me a bit, but that was the only time because, because like, you know, like the elastic would get looser because it was cotton. Otherwise, elastic used to just hold them up. And actually, people don't talk about this. I posted about it on Instagram. Um, you know, and I don't know if anybody needs to hear it because it's definitely TMI. Nice, nice. But 
having labia minora that stick out a little bit actually can help prevent the camel toe. Oh, no way. Because, because, okay, if you have a seam, like if you have bike shorts with a seam, the labia minora like protects your vestibule. It it protects, it prevents the seam from getting up in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So like now, like now I have problems in, you know, like bike shorts and yoga pants and I will kind of like sag them down somehow, you know what I, to keep them from, because otherwise it just looks like a, a little front butt or something. (laughs) So good. Oh my God. Fuck. Yeah. So I'm just, Mm -hmm. I don't, I guess I'm just letting everybody know that this is an advantage to having a little more quote unquote meat. So to get us back on track, something I wanted to chat about that maybe kind of falls under that category of like misinformed coercion is like, we're not really, and it's the same with, you know, so many things that the, that I've, that I talk about on this podcast that the medical, you know, system pushes on us, uh, and doesn't inform us about like the pill, for instance, um, there's so many side effects and risks of that that no one seems to know about when they, you know, get put on it when they're freaking 12 or 13. So with labiaplasty, like what are some of the common consequences of this surgery or the risks of this surgery? Because like um, I'm sure that you get a lot of, of stories sent into you. I've had lots of clients and heard a lot of horror stories and seen a lot of botched labiaplasties. Um, so yeah, let's chat about some of the things that can happen because like people, you know, the surgeons are like, oh, there's no, no loss of sexual function, no loss of sensation. There's, there's no, you know, it's just a bit of flappy skin. There's nothing in there. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, hang on. Cause even, even if the operation isn't botched, which does happen commonly, and we're going to talk about that, even just like a, you know, seemingly successful surgery, it's, it can still result in, loss of sexual sensation and sensitivity like even you know even if they weren't removing like sensitive tissue with nerves and erectile tissue in it which is exactly what they're doing yeah exactly this sensitive tissue and then often they'll like remove more than they're supposed to and then like aside from that another thing that I find with clients is that this causes trauma to a very delicate and very sort of personal and, and intimate and potent area of the body. And then the trauma, the energetic and emotional trauma, the trauma to the area that is like remembered in the tissues that are left there, the scar tissue and that kind of like surgical trauma, you know, from the pain afterwards, from the scar tissue, like being an issue in future and causing, you know, issues with sexual functioning and less less pleasure, all of that. Like these are things that uh happening from really like standard apparently successful surgeries and then when they go wrong like what other things have you heard of happening well first of all i want to start by saying that all the data all the outcome data on labiaplasty indicates that risks are very low and that bad outcomes are very rare um but one problem mm. is that these outcomes have only been published by the experts who mostly evaluate their own results and don't ask very good questions. Um, More recently, there was a study where they actually somehow measured the sensitivity in the labia minora. And that was, that was actually in 2017. And that was the article 
where the top expert in the world responded by saying that it was a silly study because there was no evidence that the labia minor played a role in sexual function. So basically, the study was meant to measure like whether women had less labia sensation after surgery than before. And I actually think it was a pretty good study. It was by this guy, Otto Plastic. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of his because he wrote, you know, a response to our study, sort of delegitimizing, you know, what we said about how careful surgeons need to be about damaging the nerves because he said that, you know, even if damage does occur, it can be repaired. No one has gotten repaired. No one. So, so they need to not damage them in the first place because no one has gotten repaired. Um, and he cited the way that they have um, restored function in women who are victims of female genital mutilation as evidence. Um, those women, they, they don't actually restore anything, right? They, uh, they can get rid of scar tissue. They can bring out what's left of the clitoris so that it can be more easily simulated. But everything that's been removed is permanently removed. They do not restore that. They do not restore any of the sensation from what's been removed. It's gone, right? Mm-hmm. So those surgeries get misrepresented. And so, and they have been, they were used to basically invalidate the significance of our study, which was really maddening, but Anyway, but that w- that's actually the best labiaplasty outcome study that has been published. So I have to give him kudos for that. He's also the first labiaplasty surgeon that recognized or that provided any sort of illustration of the dorsal nerves of the clitoris, you know, and so he probably is pretty safe. But basically, the results that get reported in labiaplasty journals are incredibly biased. And what's really funny is recently, a psychiatrist reached out to me because he thought it would be a good idea to look at psychiatric, like data, like patient data on who is getting labiaplasty and like what kind of psychiatric data there is. Like what are the, what is their medical history after the labiaplasty, right? Mm-hmm. This is actually a really good idea because then you could see like how many women are getting labiaplasty and then you know, are in the ER trying to kill themselves after. Because mm-hmm. that's this would mm-hmm. there's data on this, right? But I told him oh. one problem is that there's no procedure code for labiaplasty. So this is a problem. And this is also why nobody knows how many labiaplasties are done, much less how many bad outcomes there are. And he said, well, yeah, this is it's just <laughs> his idea is good, but it just wouldn't work. Because like Mm-hmm. labiaplasties get coded as vulvectomies, which are cancer surgeries. And you would expect a lot of women with vulvar cancer getting their vulvas removed because of cancer to also be suicidal, you know, or more yeah. suicidal, you know, like, but in the process of discussing this idea with him, um, you know, he was saying we'd have to do a literature review on the outcome data that exists. And he started looking into it and he, he said he couldn't find anything that wasn't published by the private offices, you know, by the private plastic surgeons themselves. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's all published. It's published by the surgeons doing the surgeries. That's who's publishing the outcome data. And he's like, that's not mm-hmm. good. And I'm like, this is, ex- this is how plastic surgery works. This is the best data you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. funny because when I tell my dad, like, cause I've complained to my dad about this for over a decade now, right? About how messed up it is for 
the outcome studies to only come from the people who, you know, are biased. Um, But it's funny because my dad has always just kind of been like, well, that's the way it is. But this psychiatrist is horrified because his field works totally differently and has a much higher standard for evidence. Um, Because your dad's a surgeon as well, isn't he? Yeah, my dad's a plastic surgeon. Right. But so the standards for evidence in surgery are really bad, especially cosmetic surgery. So all the evidence or most of the evidence I have on what can go wrong is anecdotal because for example, my outcome is not discussed in the literature. It does not exist in literature. So when I published my study, we were not allowed to say that it happens at all. So like we submitted it to them and the editors looked at it and they gave it back to us with the corrections. Right. Mm. And so they had to tell me there's no evidence that what happened to you happened. You can't say it happens. Fucking hell. Yeah. Yeah. There's no evidence that what happened to me happens. (laughs) And like so many of the, even if there was, say, like a sort of independent study done that wasn't by the surgeons, so many women are not going to come forward and volunteer the information that they had a labiaplasty done and that they now have, you know, issues with their vulvas. Like a lot, it's such a delicate topic and so some people are so self-conscious and ashamed and traumatized by this thing that's gone wrong and that they've opted to do. Um, and that they're also probably afraid of victim blaming because like, oh, well, you chose to get that surgery done. Like you're the one that wanted to get that part of your body. Yeah. And I hear about this a lot. Like I I don't, I don't think it would be that easy to get accurate numbers and data on, on botched surgeries or even just numbers on surgeries in general, because like a lot of people are not going to come forward and admit that they've had that done. And like a lot of labiaplasty operations are just done in doctor's offices under local anesthetic in like a non-certified operating room. So it just sounds to me like really unregulated doctors aren't being held accountable for like providing the procedure safely. Therefore, they're not afraid of any consequences for botching it because like, you know, especially since they've just maimed this woman. And so she's probably going to be like lacking a fair bit of um, assertiveness and confidence and and sort of drive because she's recovering from this like horrific surgery and the fact that she has less sexual pleasure now, like, you know? Yeah. Also, um, yeah. I mean, like I have a woman in my DMs who was just harmed and, you know, her doctor won't admit it and she can't find a lawyer who will take the case. And, you know, it's been 19 years Mm -hmm. since I was harmed and it's still, no one has gone to court and won. Um, so it really feels like the surgeons can get away with anything. Um, Yeah. You know, there have been a bunch of other women who have had clitoral hood reductions done without consent. Yeah. And yeah. It's it's like this this is wrong site surgery. It's surgery on another body part and yet there's not no one has succeeded in going to court um and winning mm-hmm. by saying it's so like literally up. it's it's surgery on your clitoris without your consent. Like there's an entirely different yeah. risk profile for a clitoral hood reduction mm-hmm. versus a labiaplasty. Mm-hmm. And the clitoral hood mm-hmm. is fundamentally, fundamentally clitoral hood skin. But everybody mm-hmm. just acts like, oh, it's it's about the same. It's the same, whatever. All of that is just a bunch of skin. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the approach. 
And yeah, also, and I've had clients come to me and be like, okay, so I feel really embarrassed and ashamed that I, you know, even let this happen to myself and that I chose to go get this surgery, but I was young and I was vulnerable and naive and I went and got the surgery and without my consent, they've chopped off way more than they said they were going to and they've taken off some of the clitoral hood and I've even seen people who have had part of their clitoris chopped off as well. And I'm just like, how the fuck like this would if someone accidentally like someone was operating on your hand and they accidentally chopped off your pinky finger there would be a court case about that you know like this is just so unacceptable and it's like there's doctors who specialize in correcting botched labiaplasties there's forums of thousands of people who have undergone the surgery with really disastrous results you know there's people trying to bring court court cases like this doesn't exist for no reason like all of this is in existence because there's so many botched surgeries and so much just abhorrent behavior by surgeons um i wish um, i wish i could get more women to come forward more um yeah i finally filed for a nonprofit recently so i don't know if like one function of the nonprofit could be like helping women file cases but um Mm. That would be something um, just because, you know, all this work that I've done has just been on my own and without funding. But um, basically, there is a real problem with how hard it is to file any cases and um, with how lawyers won't take the cases. It's really strange. Mm -hmm. Excuse the interruption, my loves, but I'm shamelessly seeking reviews and five-star ratings for the potty because, as I'm sure you've noticed by now, it's pretty fab, and the more people who get to hear it, the more people it can help. Reviews and ratings help me curry favor with the algorithmic gods and get suggested to other listeners to check out. Plus, they make me feel really good and appreciated as I continue to pour my heart and soul into creating this baby for you. And I promise I don't maz over them or anything. I mostly just tuck them away for a rainy day when I'm filled with self-doubt and existential dread about being self-employed, which is fairly frequently. (laughs) So you see, leaving a review really does make a difference and it's an easy little act of support that you can take in just a minute or two by either going to Spotify and leaving five stars for the show or writing a written review and leaving five stars over on Apple Podcasts. Choose your poison, or if you're a real overachiever, you could do both. Whoa now. If you are writing a review, though, just be sure to only use G-rated words, because despite the fact that this is a podcast about sexuality, words like sex can be censored and your review won't actually show up. Lame. Anyway, oh, oh, what was that? Oh, you're going to go do it right now while I wait. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great idea. May as well just quickly click that five-star button before we get on with it and, you know, like forget about it and get on with your day. Um, um, oh, I'm hearing them roll in. I'm hearing those five stars. <laughs> oh my God, I make myself cringe. Anyway, uh, thank you much, Lee. You're a total gem and I'll let you get back to the episode now. There are examples actually of women asking about risks and then being misinformed. Like I've seen surgeons describe anatomy incorrectly on real self. I think I've posted about that. Mm. It's really scary. Mm. I had a whole Twitter thread of screenshots of doctors on real self misinforming patients. And it was weird how I like when I post stuff like that, it's so obvious, but it's, it's really hard to get people to care. Like I'm showing them that doctors are misinforming women 
Anyway, what I've tried to repeat over and over is misinformed consent is not consent. So if women had surgery based on lies, it's not their fault. This was something done to them without their consent. You know, like anything that, like for me, I consented to excision of redundant labia. And my doctor removed, completely removed my labia and performed a clitoral head reduction without my consent. That's not, that was not with my consent. Not to mention, Mm -hmm. I was not told about any risks. All I was told is that all surgery carries risks. My consent form was fill in the blank. So it was just a, for any, it could have been used for any surgery. It just, so I just signed all of surgery carries risks. My doctor didn't talk to me about any risks. Like, oh God, the amount of nerve endings and like really important bits and bobs down there that can be severed or interfered with is just so frightening and I've like seen this is this is pretty horrifying but I've seen surgeries that you know have gone wrong or or even like ones I've had clients that have um been like yeah I had labiaplasty like I don't really look down there but you know can't orgasm and yeah it's just like mortifying because it's it's clearly impacting them in all sorts of ways that they weren't told about and like all of these doctors are completely denying that there's like any wrongdoing that there's any risk um any damage done when people speak up about it like I've heard people say like they've tried to kind of go back and be like um excuse me like this isn't right and they've been gaslit they've been bullied they've been intimidated you know, by these medical professionals. And so then they don't even get to the point where they're lodging, trying to get a court case happening or like they, they can't even get to that point because they're gaslit and they're bullied. Um, and it's already such a sensitive topic and they're wounded, <laughs> you know, they're traumatized. Yeah, so I try, so I try to share, I try to share stories on my page anonymously. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like if any of your yeah. clients would ever be willing, but, um, mm-hmm. I feel like it really helps phase awareness. That's the only thing I know how to do. And I obviously don't share whose stories. Yeah. 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 It's, it's good to spread awareness definitely. And I think would help people feel less alone in their own experience and their story. If they were reading other people that have gone through a similar thing. Um, yeah, especially because like for me, so for me, I looked into the literature and I could see all the risk factors. Like, so I could see that, the way that training standards were set up was basically the perfect storm for these surgeries to go badly, right? Mm. I could see surgeons were doing surgeries that weren't trained to do on anatomy they didn't know, right? I could see, you know, these surgeons had no clue about, you know, the function of the labia minora. They had never even thought about like the mecha- like biomechanics of the vulva, basically is what I say, like how the labia minora facilitate clitoral stimulation, um, during intercourse, nobody really talks about that, but I think that that's you know a real thing that happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, just the way so many of these surgeons didn't acknowledge any function of the labia minora, um, didn't just completely ignored where nerves were uh, r- right under the clitoral hood. They just completely ignored them. So I could see how all of this was basically predictive of bad outcomes. Also. They actually instruct surgeons to perform labiaplasty in a way that makes complete amputation likely. Uh, Like there are so many ways, like if you look at instructions for how to do labiaplasty, 
in medical journals and in medical textbooks, often the instructions will be dangerous. Like for example, on up to date, they tell surgeons to mark the labia minora while they're under tension. And that's how outcomes like mine happen where the labia minora are completely removed. And I had my dad, who was a plastic surgeon, write to the OBGYN who wrote that article and say like, hey, like maybe don't tell people to do it this way. And she would not change it. (laughs) Um, And the woman in the example, it wasn't a woman, it was a 15 year old. Like it just fucked up. <laughs> like, oh my um, God. they they had a fifteen year old with totally normal sized labia minora as the example, and they were marking her labia under tension, which is how complete amputation happens by accident. Oh, um, yeah, there. I don't know if there are training standards now. I know when I crashed the ACOG annual meeting in two thousand eighteen, one OBGYN told me. I know everybody is doing these and I know they're not trained. Wow. And another OBGYN told me women just shouldn't be getting those surgeries. And I said, well, what about women who need them for medical reasons? And she said, well, we have more important things to worry about. <laughs> because basically I was saying, I was asking why there are no training standards for labiaplasty. Like, so OBGYNs are not trained to do them in residency. And at that time there was no continuing medical education for labiaplasty. Since I started my advocacy, they did add some kind of online CME, but that's still not, you know, like yeah, a, an online yeah. course isn't the best way to learn how to do surgery. <laughs> it's better than nothing. Yeah. Oh my God. And I think like one of the reasons why these surgeries are so often botched and, you know, like they don't seem to understand just how risky it is to start snipping away in such an innovated area is that like there just isn't proper sort of anatomy underst- like knowledge of female anatomy and pleasure and anatomy in, in fe- females and this is kind of like where you're working. yeah it's it's unbelievable so these people these surgeons these doctors are like totally misinformed they have nowhere near as much specific education on this part of the body as they should and then they're kind of hacking away and that's why it's so important what you're trying to do in getting proper anatomically correct diagrams and information into textbooks and into the trainings now right like so that there's less risk of of these doctors and surgeons totally butchering this super delicate area yeah, it's weird how there's just so much ignorance of vulvar anatomy and it's almost like people avoid it. Like people avoid being paying any attention to the anatomy of the vulva. So pretty much all mid-sagittal plane illustrations of the female pelvis are incorrect. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one thing I got in trouble for last year, I think it was last year, maybe it was the year before. It was quite a while ago. Um I got in trouble for pointing out that a viral illustration of a female pelvis uh, looked like female genital mutilation. And I offended a lot of people because the illustration went viral because it had black skin and it was supposed to be raising awareness about the need for representation. And being me, I am singularly focused on vulva and clitoris. And so... I had to point out that it looked like female genital mutilation. And I was disturbed that none of the doctors who were sharing it and talking about how great it was said anything. And that illustrator admitted that he, um, you know, 
he's censored the external female genitals to prevent embarrassment. Right. So he yeah. admitted it. Oh my god! But like nobody was bothered. Like he li- he literally just showed everything as if it had been cut off. <laughs> oh god! Anyway, yeah. this got brought up again last week because people were hating on me again. I don't know if I should talk about that now. Yeah, you're welcome to. Um, so there really is a theme of ignorance about what vulvas look like in medicine and in society. And there is just this avoidance of vulvas. And there are all these ideas that vulvas should basically be invisible. Um, and so I do think it's interesting that, you know, so labiaplasty surgeons will claim that protruding labia menorah unfeminine and embarrassing. So basically, uh, there was this vulva cast video and I feel bad because the artist was upset, but you know, anyway, I, I liked the video. I used it for a thread where I said, you know, when I was 17, I was misled into thinking that protruding labia menorah were unfeminine and embarrassing. But like, now that I look at all these casts, like I think that the protruding labia menorah are beautiful. And I, anyway, I didn't, I just meant to talk about my experience, but then I reached out to the artist and I asked her, had whether any of the women had undergone female genital mutilation, because I kind of did a double take on the video and was like, what's going on? And she said, no, but there are trans vulvas. Um, no, I'm not sure. Anyway, I've gotten in so much trouble with her. I don't even think she'll speak to me, but I identified that one vulva was trans who was confirmed trans. Anyway, I have, this is like a really insensitive thing to do. And I said, I didn't think that women, I didn't think that trans women or women who had undergone female genital mutilation should be included in a vulva diversity project because I think the point of a vulva diversity project is to spread awareness about what natural vulvas look like because that's what people don't know about. But, you know, I'm not the artist. It's not my art. You know, like if I were making a project to raise awareness about normal female anatomy, I would not include surgically altered or surgically created anatomy, but that would be my, my, you know, my own project. I really didn't have any business saying what I did about somebody else's art. Mm -hmm. I can see that now. (laughs) At the time I was just thinking like, I was just thinking from the perspective of, like what I would have wanted when I was 17 years old and I didn't know what was out there. If that makes mm, sense. Mm, mm, yeah. So I got in a lot of trouble because people didn't like, I literally like circled, you know, I, I was like, I circled the vulvas oh, that I God. said were obviously oh, female. God. Oh God. Oh my God. No wonder you're copying hate, babe. But yeah, I mean, I do think there is something to be said about how when surgeons create, uh, you know, like these pseudo vulvas, they consistently go for that quote unquote Barbie appearance. And I actually have a follower who is trans and we get along very well. And maybe it's because we're both like little borderline Asperger's. (laughs) You know, like we both might just, you know, say things without realizing people's feelings might get Mm -hmm. hurt. Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing. I'm not trying to hurt anyone. 
when I post stuff like that. Like some people were like, you were trying to hurt our feelings. I'm like, literally just did not think about your feelings, which I know, you know, that's not great. It's not a great answer, but, um, Oh um, God. Yeah. What a shit show. Hey, that must be super hectic. Cause I, I feel like, you know, with cancel culture and with the internet and everything, it is so easy to misstep and then just have like the absolute wrath of the internet come down on you. And I feel like, yeah, of course that was an insensitive thing to do. I don't necessarily agree that. I mean, I feel like vulva diversity, I get where you're coming from in terms of, um, you know, it would be more helpful to young women who are looking to find, you know, natural vulvas that look like theirs to have only, you know, like born female vulvas there. But I also like totally back the artist, including all sorts of diversity in in the trans vulvas and things like that. Like, I think that's great. So like, we have a difference in opinion there, but I also understand where you're coming from. But I just don't think it's like helpful the way, and this is a completely other topic but I don't think it's helpful how when people do fuck up and make a mistake and maybe do something insensitive or they haven't thought about how it might impact others and it's not coming from a place of animosity or deliberate trying to do deliberate harm they get so much anger directed at them which isn't making it like a teachable moment it's making it like let's cancel you and like completely ruin your life and make your mental health shit and just be super super horrible and angry and that's not like that's not very constructive either. So I kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm, I totally see how this situation would just be. They dig up everything. They dig up everything wrong I've done in like the past five years. Yeah. Yeah. Yuck. Yuck. Such a shit situation to be in. Like, just, just be like, Hey babe. Um, and maybe you didn't realize or didn't think this, but like you, that's not okay to say that or like this is really harmful to this group of people so maybe you need to consider how that would come off you know like I wish I wish that people were a little bit more um more ready to correct us in a gentle and loving way that's an opportunity to learn and better ourselves rather than coming at you with just every bit of vitriol that they can muster and I feel like especially since internet culture has become a thing that's kind of people's default you know people are very 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 quick to take offense and assume the worst of you and just be like right we're gonna fucking ruin you (laughs) you know um which just is like a pretty tough way to learn that you fucked up like it's hard for me to like talk about things that I know are going to be controversial because I have this fear of cancel culture and of people taking offense and getting angry and that kind of is always in the back of my mind like when I say something that I'm like oh I don't know this might not please some people but it's like you can't let that rule your life because then you're just you know shaping yourself to be exactly how everyone else needs you to be and you cannot be perfect for every single person you know like it's just not yeah. It's also just like, you know, you mentioned Asperger's and I'm just thinking, well, it's just one group of people getting angry at another group of like, you know, neurodivergence. Like that's maybe these people that are attacking you don't quite understand how your brain works and that that, that means that you actually didn't mean them any harm by this. And you just didn't consider, you know, like that all of our brains work so differently and we have such a different lens on these things. And you're like deep, deep, deep in this world of like, vulva active activists you know like trying to educate and so you're like you said single singularly focused on this um and your area of um you know the area that you nerd out on isn't trans 
you know, it's it's not so like these people are really focused on that. So therefore they'll be like, oh my God, she said this thing. This is horrific. Um, you're just like, what? What do you mean? Oh fuck, whoops. I was actually just thinking about this other thing that I really nerd out on. And like my brain doesn't work in the same way that yours does. And so it's just like a whole lot of people not understanding one another and not giving each other a little bit of like leeway and um and you know, everyone yeah, just I mean, assuming not- the worst. I tend to be just like brutally matter of fact about things. Yeah. Like for me, yeah. it hurt me when people wouldn't recognize that I was mutilated. And I will say I was mutilated because to me, that's, that's a reality. And that was a reality that I had a lot of trouble getting recognized. Mm-hmm. And for me, it felt like, you know, a big trauma that I was gaslighted about because I was told I looked normal after my surgery and that my loss of sensation was all in my head. You know, that, yeah. it, that it couldn't yeah. have been, I was told that it couldn't have been caused by my surgery um, and that I just yeah. needed to fall in love or I just needed to relax, you know? So for me, like, I think that the ideal, like what should have happened as far as I'm concerned is when I went to other doctors after my surgery, they should have, thought oh my gosh this girl has been mutilated and they should have asked me if I was okay and they should have reported it you know yeah that didn't happen um Mm -hmm. so to me like it's actually important for people to know what what a normal like healthy like intact vulva looks like versus one that has been damaged yeah Uh, because that should be something that at least doctors can pick up on. And also like, you know, I've heard women say like, Oh, that's so mean to that. It's like so hurtful to say that a vulva looks mutilated, but I was hurt by telling that my vulva didn't look mutilated, you know? And to this day, like I'm really uncomfortable. Like if, if any of my sexual partners want to tell me that I have a beautiful pussy, it really bothers me. I'm like, don't say that, please. You know, I don't want them to say that. Like I'll take compliments about the rest of my body, but I don't, I don't want them to see beauty in something that's obviously been damaged, you know, like, and that doesn't make, that doesn't, it's not because I'm insecure. It's not, it's just, it's just like, it's about like being honest, I guess to me. Yeah. 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 No, I get it. I get it. Um, something that I wanted to get your thoughts on is um something Naomi Wolf does a really fabulous job of explaining in her book Vagina um and it's this connection between a woman's genitals and her personal power um her confidence her assertiveness her sense of belonging and value in the world um and the vulva and vagina and just female sexual pleasure uh in general play such an important role in the way a woman sees herself and holds herself and moves in the world and it's been documented that you know because of this this knowledge that we've we've all innately held certain cultures or religions they use this knowledge to hobble women and keep them subservient and small and easy to manage and control and like you know even in certain wars the soldiers have been instructed specifically to rape the women of the opposing side or to use their bayonets or knives to mutilate the women's genitals because they know that this is the thing that will harm them the most grievously and cause the most damage not just to the physical body but to the psyche and therefore if the psyche of the 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 women of the 
these people, like the, you know, the community or the opposing side, if that's damaged, um, that will kind of mean that the war is easier to win because they're, um, they're sort of like, I don't even know how to put it. I mean, everyone should read the book Vagina, but yeah, would you be able to speak on this sort of widespread and, and I mean, it's been going on for ages too, you know, this widespread attack on vulvas and vaginas that we see everywhere in the patriarchy because, like, in my opinion, it doesn't have to even be as obvious as female genital mutilation. I also see it in the culture that causes women to feel that they need, you know, deodorant for their vaginas or more drastically to just cut off a precious part of their pleasure anatomy in order to not feel you know, gross or undesirable or abnormal, like everything from, you know, feeling as though we need to be ashamed of our periods and ashamed of the smell of our vaginas right up to like needing to get labiaplasty. This is all, this is all resulting from a culture that is creating um, this environment where women are made to feel this way. I, w- I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that and, and the fact that that actually serves the patriarchy to like attack vaginas and v- vulvas because it, it creates like less confidence and less personal power in women. It, yeah, I guess it, if I can have a good orgasm, I usually feel better and that is hard for me. And so then, you know, there's sometimes a struggle, like if I can't and then, and then I feel sad or frustrated with what happened to me instead of energized, like, like if I'm, you know, like being able to have a good orgasm can be energizing. And so that's like a form of power that I may struggle to get because of what happened to me. Um, I don't know. Like that's really uncomfortable for me to admit for myself. Um, but I do think as far as why female genitals are attacked, um, why, you know, female sexuality is suppressed, you know, why we call vulvas vaginas, why everything is, you know, sex is defined around male pleasure, why uh, the clitoris has been censored, you know, all these different patterns, why female genital mutilation happens. Um, This is because, you know, even Steven Pinker says, you know, the whole impetus for misogyny and patriarchy is to control female sexuality. And it's fundamentally about controlling female sexual agency. It's about controlling who decides you know, who to reproduce with, basically. And, you know, uh, there's this argument that is in Untrue by Wednesday Martin that basically female sexuality was suppressed with the agricultural revolution because women lost power and we ended up in these much more hierarchical societies and we ended up being property. Hey, me again. If you'd like to support the potty and you've already given it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on, I want to mention that you can buy some really dope merch from the website and get yourself a labia lounge tote, tea, togs. Yep, you heard that right. I even have labia lounge bathers or a cute fanny pack if that'd blow your hair back. So uh, if fashion isn't your passion, though, you can donate to my Buy Me A Coffee donation page, which is actually called Buy Me A Soy Chai Latte, because I'll be the first to admit, I'm a bit of a Melbourne cafe tosser like that. And yes, that is my coffee order. (laughs) 
You can do a once-off donation or an ongoing membership and sponsor me for as little as three fat ones a month. And I also have a Sunroom profile over on the Sunroom app, as I've mentioned. And I also offer one-on-one coaching and online courses that'll help you level up your sex life and relationship with yourself and others in a really big way. So every bit helps because it ain't cheap to put out a sweet podcast uh, into the world every week out of my own pocket. So I will be undyingly grateful if you support me and my biz financially in any of these ways. And if you like, I'll even give you a mental BJ with my mind from the lounge itself. Saucy. Um, I'll pop the links in the show notes. Thank you. Later. I only just learned about attacking female genitals in war. Um. I only just learned about that. So that's a, that's yeah. a new thing that I would have to think about. Have you read Vagina? I would super duper recommend it because um, Naomi Wolf, yeah, is a tenacious researcher and has done a really good job of kind of bringing together all the evidence of kind of what I just described. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a strategy. It's a strategy in war. It's a strategy in the patriarchy to keep women um, tractable and easily malleable and manipulatable, you know? Um, I so do, I do think. Mm-hmm. I do think that it, you know, that slut shaming us takes away our power in dating because we can't as easily replace men. So I actually think that one reason why women end up in relationships where they don't feel like they can ask for what they want in bed and where they settle for men who don't please them is because they don't feel, they feel like once they get to the point that they're having sex with a man, they're stuck. Right. And they don't feel an ability to just to say like what I say, like if I, if I'm dating a man and we have sex, which tends to happen pretty early on for me. So I guess like other women are getting far more invested in their partners before they have sex. But I tend to have sex on like date three to five. And so I'm not that invested by date three to five. So, or even sometimes like I've had, I've waited until like the eighth date to have sex. I mean, it just depends on the person. But like, if we get to that point and I have sex with them and they don't, and I'm not satisfied, they, they might get like one or two more shots and then it's over because I'm not going to, and, and it's pretty brutal coming from me because I am very difficult to please in bed. But my attitude is just that I deserve as much pleasure as I can get. And if a man is not able to give that to me, it sadly doesn't matter how hard he tries or how, you know, how much he cares or any of that. I'm just out. And there are so many women who won't even be out, even when a man is is not even trying. <laughs> um, you know, like so many women, like my, sorry, my mindset is how can they please me? Can they please me? Like my mindset when I go to have sex with somebody else is are they going to please me enough or not? And if they don't, they didn't pass that test. But most women, they go into sex and they feel like they're the ones who have to pass the test kind of, they're not, they're not, they don't have the mindset of this man has to please me, has to live up to my expectations and standards. 
they don't yeah feel that's excited. the sad thing is like so many so many women are already on the back foot feeling like it's up to them to like you know please the other partner and they're also going into it thinking that they don't deserve pleasure as much as a male does that they aren't able to feel as much pleasure there's there's all these narratives around sexuality that I'm always trying to debunk and and change the story of that you know like like women go in with really low expectations um, a lot of the time because they don't think that they are going to get good sex and they're like oh you know like whatever like pretty resigned to it as long as they tick these other boxes but what I do what I do think is like if people go into a relationship and it's clear that you know say maybe the man isn't giving pleasure or like totally excelling in the bedroom if he is willing to keep trying to accept feedback and guidance and direction and if they're able to work on that together he can be shit at sex for ages and as long as he is really invested in her pleasure and he's trying and then she because it takes two I think it's really unfair to put the impetus of like giving pleasure and providing orgasms on the man it's like the woman needs to also know her body she also needs to self-pleasure and be able to give herself pleasure and therefore direct the guy and give him guidance and really like valuable feedback and information on how best to please her. And I think if they've got that piece down and they're communicating and they're committed, they're invested in one another's pleasure, even if they're not great at sex together in the beginning and even if he's not able to give her pleasure for a while, it doesn't matter because they've got the tools to make that happen in the future. So I think like I've probably got a really different approach to you in that I'm a lot more lenient on, you know, guys who can't give me pleasure straight away as long as they actually want to and they're willing to work with me on that. If they're like, oh, like not invested in my pleasure or they don't care, or they're like, oh, but that worked on my last girlfriend or like other women like that, what's wrong with you? You must be broken or they just see sex as a way that they can get off and they use you as basically like a cum sleeve, fuck that, I'm out of there, that's a red flag. But I think if they're really willing and they care and they try and if if you, you're, you know, owning your responsibility for your own pleasure and you're like giving them really good info on how they can get better at fucking you and loving you then like yeah that's that's where the juice is at so but that's I think we've gone like way off track I just want to I've just noticed the time and I just want to like steer us back before we wrap up to labiaplasty and like you know are there any other um words of wisdom or reassurance or info or like any last sort of parting gift that you'd like to give the listeners and leave them with um perhaps something that you wish that you had known when you were younger perhaps a resource that might be really helpful or just something that we haven't covered that you want to mention uh well I think it's a total lie that men don't like big labia and I think a lot of the ones who say they don't are you know, they tend to be guys who are much less experienced. Like I've never encountered like a grown man who has had, you know, a decent number of partners who has any problem with larger labia. And I found that a lot of men actually prefer them. So Mm -hmm. I, and that's not to say anything negative about any, you know, I'm just saying like there, there are plenty of men out there who appreciate Audis. Um, One thing that makes me kind of crazy is the most liked photo on Reddit, the most liked vulva photo on Reddit is an Audi. And despite that, like, there's just so much evidence out there that a a lot of men do actually like Audis. And it's really hard sometimes how 
when I provide it, women won't receive it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, you know, I wish that women would just be more open to that possibility. You know, like, for example, if men say they love Arby's, like that, that literally means they love Arby's. Like it doesn't, <laughs> like I've seen a lot of women believe that that's derogatory, believe that it's an insult. And it's like, no, 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 they're telling you they like it. They're just not using a word that you like, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's such a shame that we're also, you know, like, I feel like I used to be super self-conscious of having small breasts. And it, it, it was like an outdated, you know, I feel like when I was younger, I got all these ideas in my head about that and about what was attractive because there was different trends in women's like bodies and beauty standards. Nowadays, I totally, like, I don't, I don't feel self-conscious about my small breasts. But for years, I had men saying, I love small boobs and like different partners being like, but I love small boobs. Like, I actually prefer them, blah, blah, blah. I didn't believe them. I was like, you know, I'd already yeah. made up my mind because when I was yeah. young, these really damaging mess- messages sunk in in my formative years and I believed this thing about my body. And I think that's what's happening with a lot of people um, and that's why, you know, even when people say, oh, like I love outies, a lot of women are not going to believe them at first or maybe ever because they've already digested and like accepted this reality that they think is the truth, which is that like no men like Audis and they're gross and they're unappealing or they're undesirable or whatever. So it's just so sad. And I think it's important to keep reiterating. Like, I love that that was your message to people to end on is like, lots of people love bigger inner labia, like, and there's different strokes yeah. for different folks. And you know, and also like if someone's going to love you and feel attracted to you, most of that is going to be based on your personality, your energy, you know, a million other factors before it's based on your physical body. And I would say if someone is basing their love or their affections or their attraction purely on your physical body and what your labia look like, red flag, fuck them right off. So that's what I want to end on. <laughs> um, where can people find you if they want to check out your work and, and support your advocacy trying to get like proper female pleasure anatomy included in textbooks? And um, it's like Jessica that. underscore Anne underscore Pin P-I-N. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jessica. Okay, thanks. And that's it, darling hearts. Thank you for stopping by the Labia Lounge. Your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it, just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double L action next time. And in the meantime, if you'd be a dear and subscribe, share this episode, or leave a review on iTunes, then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that, my dear, is a downright act of sex-positive feminist activism. And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify, and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered, or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyograph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT and I seriously hope you're following me on there because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time.